Yeah, we what? haven't reached a hundred pounds. Uh, dollars, dollars. Okay, hello and welcome to episode. I'm going to do that again. I don't like saying welcome. <laughs> no. Okay. Thanks well, for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode sixty-six of the world famous cats trap top tats <laughs> i am uh, i'm the lost gardens of heligoland and uh, i podcast alongside um morty <laughs> morty um yeah so a bit delayed but welcome to our new uh, couple of uh, tens of thousands of listeners and um Bring us up to nine point. Uh, let's have a look at the graph. Nine point five six million as of today, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, as is standard procedure, we'll again. Why do I even do this? People don't do this in other podcasts. They don't talk about <laughs> what they're going to talk about. Just talk about it. Okay, so we start with some fu to our new listeners. Fu stands for follow up. Fu, Darren. Yes, fu, Conway. Do you have any um, any fu? Oh God, no, I can't remember anything. I, I remember this stuff and I write it down. Okay, first of all, so possibly, and these are these possibly all pertain to episode 65. Or, or maybe not, I don't know. We were discussing Zosteropids, the white eyes, a group of passerines. Was yep. that the last episode? And, right. uh, what? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, you I, asked me and I didn't know the answer. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, a generalization was made about like how kind of you know what sort of range they have as, as goes ecological variation and i basically said yeah they're all the same no that's completely not true they do loads of stuff there's like treetop ones and low canopy ones wow and they move about in trees small branch ones and <gasps> branch ones up and, and, and they down do the branch up and down the branch bro- this yeah, yeah the, all their kinds range of is astounding some of them eat more pollen than others. Some of them eat more nectar than others. Some of them eat more insects than others. There's variation in bill size and it's all kinds of stuff going on there. So, wow. So that was just that was a crass generalization, and it was Jeez. incorrect. And we stand thank you, correctly. thank you, Hanukkah, Hannah Meyer, for uh, giving us some valuable white eye information. We'll come back to Hanukkah Meyer at some point in the future. Um. Now, we also spoke about um, uh, this this long discussion uh, inspired by the passing of um, famous radio host um, Art Bell. We spoke we, – we touched briefly on the idea that um, where in society do these kind of crazy sort of weirdy fringe ideas come from and does this – this is all covered at length last time, but the, 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 does like interest in the paranormal and Bigfoot and missing people and all that stuff, does that tie into the current concern about fake news, Trumpism and its associated political uh, shenanigans? 
Um, and, uh, and, and we sort of said no, because it seems that a lot of the sort of interest in the paranormal and some of the weirdy stuff and also some of the fringe conspiracy ideas, including things like anti-vax, anti-vaccination movement, that sort of stuff, we sort of said no. So that seems to be more kind of like lefty liberal kind of, you know, hippie-ish stuff. And, um, the reason I'm going on this long, tedious tirade is because one person who left a comment on the uh, website where the podcast is hosted, mm-hmm. and like a genius, I haven't got it open in front of me right now because I closed it a second ago. Um, someone said, "Someone, I'm going to have to find it because because I, I, I need to just uh, address this." I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but it's significant enough that we do need to touch on it. Okay, thank you to the people who do comment on the um, uh, site. So DJA, if that's your real name, says, I'm not entirely sure I share your ambivalence towards anti-vaxxers and other uh, random anti-science stupids. And then they go on to discuss the problem with you know anti-vaxxers. So let me make something very clear. We were not in any way, and I re-listened to what we said, we were not in any way promoting an ambivalence if you can do such a thing we're not in any way saying that it's okay for people to be anti-vaxxers that is definitely not what we were doing and it's definitely not what we even said and what we were saying is that there was and there was a tendency for people of like leftish leaning if you like talking about people in that way um there is a tendency for those sort of people to be the ones that have fringe beliefs among which are the anti-vaxxers we were not saying that's cool carry on and we're fine with that i certainly have strong feelings about people that deny uh, vaccinations for their children they are you know a a problematic group of people that i would like to uh, whose behavior i do not approve of and um, i don't want to speak for you but i suspect you are probably in a similar uh position yeah, it's one of the most serious one. Well, it's probably, you know, I'm trying to think of whether there are more serious problems in fringe beliefs. And I think that is the most serious one. It's it's the one yeah, that has right. the worst wor- real world consequences and the potential for the worst real world consequences. Yeah. So there you go. So, so yeah, obviously, uh, I, don't, I don't like speaking on your behalf, but obviously we are on the same page there. I feel quite strongly about this. And obviously I've got kids and I have got, gone to great trouble to get them vaccinated which you know they didn't like when they're little but sorry but it's got to happen um uh, anyway, yeah. so so yeah we, we we definitely weren't saying that but we were we were more broadly saying that some of these weirdy ideas do come from leftish people blah blah blah, blah. okay I'm, i could carry on talking about this but i'm just saying the same thing again and again um we were also challenged and i'm afraid i can't remember who and i've actually lost the message i've lost the communication i can't remember where it came from but someone also said that, that did you know this john there's actually some study that indicates that the generalization that i and also you made is actually not accurate yes that it is accurate actually not lefty socialist yeah. hippie type people that hold these weird fringy views because i so, always look things up after we do the podcast <laughs> i think is that thing that i said true oh wait no it isn't <laughs> yeah so i'm a little bit confused on that one um and i mean yeah um, so anyway i think yeah it'd be interesting to see it broken down by country because certainly in america the anti-government stance is quite is part of the right you know and that's not so true here it, i i would think that in in the uk it would be more likely to be skew left and but yeah who knows it's very difficult i mean 
how how are we doing here for a podcast called the Tetrapod Zoology Podcast? <laughs> but it's very difficult to talk about. It's not very difficult, but there are some um, unacceptable generalizations that we make whenever we talk about people's position on a sliding scale of political left versus right um, thing. Mm. Because it's not like it's not like there's like a fixed point for a air quotes left and a fixed point for an air quotes right because for example in uh this is this is going to work visually for john but for no one else okay so my my hands here are obviously a left hand and a right hand and what you regard in the united states of america as if you're left you're here and if you're right you're here now take that to another country whatever it is like let's say let's say the uk if you're left wing in the uk you are not positioned here the same place as you are if you're left wing in the uh, United States. If you're left wing in the UK, you're actually here. I am moving my left hand like a meter over to the left. You're actually over there. And if you're right wing in the UK, you're actually more like I'm now going to move my right hand close to my left hand. So this is my this is a United States left hand and a UK right hand. Does that make? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like it's not the same for these different areas. Someone who would regard themselves as like, I'm really right wing. I'm the worst right wing Tory you'll ever meet in the UK would actually be kind of a left wing American. <laughs> because, because I, I, Not to insult Americans, of course. I would never do that. But uh, it's not the same for these nations. But also I'd say that, yeah, OK, so left and right wing is a single dimension. And actually, people's political beliefs are not just multi-dimensional; they're hugely dimensional. People have all sorts of um, opinions all sort all over the place. You're probably looking at, you know, what 150 opinions that they have. They have, and collapsing all that down into one dimension is often not very informative. I, but you know, take- you know, lots of people you talk to, and you think, oh, they're so right wing and or left wing, and then you find that they've got some. A little mm. cluster or some belief that is like way out on the other side, and this is this is yeah. done in opinion polls and stuff. People have all sorts of things that don't fit in the left right wing spectrum. Yeah, yeah, and it's for that reason. I mean, I, I regard myself as left wing, but it's for that reason that I I cannot affiliate. I cannot regard myself as a as an affiliate of any political party that we have. Just because, like, no, it's not. It's hard, it's hard really for is. rational people to to affiliate with a party. I do think that it's, it can be tricky. I'm pleased to hear that. <laughs> I don't regard. I'm not sure if I'm a rational person, but I can't. I, I I just can't. There's like no. There's no one set of like core principles. I'm like, yeah, I'm cool with all of that. I do like the Green Party, but even then, there's like not everything. I think. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Okay, yes, we're... I mean, yeah, the <laughs> overriding thing. Yeah, obviously, but yeah, I'm a bit crazy. In anyway. <laughs> Um, and also on FU, um, I refer to you as a CTO. That might stand for something, but I actually meant TCO, so that's a stupid correction. Now, hold on. What? Chief Technology Officer. Now, I got it the other way around. I called, See, even then I can't get it right. TCO. TCO is wrong. TCO is technology, wrong. Technology Chief Officer. Hmm. <laughs> technology Chief of- comma, Officer? Question mark. <laughs> no, it's CTO. CTO. Chief C for chief in that case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, okay, done. Right. Tidly. Oh, I have some follow-up, Darren. Oh, okay. I, Stop me if I've done this before, but on the plastic bags issue. You have haven't you, done this before? I haven't done this not, before? 
Not that I so you know, I was a bit skeptical as whether the five P thing would make a difference anyway, right? Oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah that's going way back, yeah, yeah, yeah. A follow up from about three years back now, yeah. So I was in the shop the other day, and I was standing behind a guy, and the um, checkout person said, uh, "Do you want a bag?" And he said, "Hmm, how much is it?" And she said, five P." And he went, "Hmm." Nah. <laughs> so, I'm just wondering what she could have said, which would have had him say, yeah, I'll take a bag. 5p <laughs> was too steep. Hmm. So, it works. Stops it people getting bags. Definitely works. It definitely works. Um, I am. I'm encouraged that there is now uh, the, the plastic pollution thing has now got enough momentum. Enough people are aware of it that uh, it may be that we've gone too far and that already it's t- is too late. And you know everything's going to die because of plastic choking or the ecosystems and everything. He says optimistically, but. Um, uh, I am at least encouraged that enough people are now aware of it, and there are things happening. You know, there's like a, there's there's like I think it's like yeah, 15 to 17 countries worldwide that are now clearly acting on the uh, um, prevent. Uh, the, the, they're slowing or stopping the production of so many disposable one-use plastics. Um, there's building work that's just about to happen next door to me. There's going to be loads of banging. Don't know if you can hear that in the background. Let me know if it becomes a problem. All right. Also on FU, I have to say that um, I think uh, one or two listeners mentioned a load of weird noises that I had in the background that sounded like screaming or screeching. Um, we've got two dogs, and the the, the little one, uh, Teddy, he's a West Highland Terrier, he barks when he gets concerned about noises he hears near the house and that sets off willow our older dog and for some strange reason her response is to scream it's a it's like a loud kind of like if i imitate it i'll sound very strange but it's a and really like a scream it's really unpleasant and uh, it's it's really bad so so that was going on in the background while that's, i was podcasting that's to do with getting deaf isn't it we think she's got dementia She's got like a whole a whole list of signs to do with uh, canine dementia. Like she just she spends hours and hours and hours aimlessly walking in circles. It's quite depressing, but uh, you know this is what happens with animals <clears throat> of all kinds. Okay, um, insert jingle here. News from the world of science and books. <laughs> news from the world. News from the world of science and books. Okay, okay why have on. we changed that? Why have we changed that? Because I need, because I need to somewhere talk about. I need to in some place talk about this new book thing, which I often do, and I'm mm-hmm. fi- and I'm figuring that it kind of. I don't know where else to put it. So. Yeah, but why <laughs> so. can't it just go news from the world of news? Is that oh, that's what it's called? <laughs> the world of news. Oh my god! Oh, you have been away yeah, for a month and you've completely forgotten everything. <laughs> Okay, okay. So, edit all that out. Edit all that out. Right. Okay. News from the world of news. That jingle. Play that now. News from the world of news. Yeah, when, we get, news. when we get our $100 an episode. But you've already made that jingle. You made a news from the world of news. Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. Okay. Jesus Christ. Okay. So, um, 
this I feel this is fairly well known among uh, people that I interact with already. But um, Dougal Dixon's uh, very well known and influential book of 1981, After Man, which is about which is a a speculative you know it's it's the benchmark work on spec bio or spec zoo speculative biology speculative zoology. Uh, it's a, an imaginary look at, you know, imaginary wildlife 50 million years in the future. Did I say it was published in 1981? Well, it's just been republished. Um, so, um, oh, my God, May, yeah, end of May 2018, the uh, a new edition. I have not seen it yet. My understanding is that uh, it's got a new introduction written by Dougal, which takes account of, you know, the things that the the influence that he feels the book has had over the decades, which is appropriate. It looks like there might be a couple of new illustrations. Um, I saw uh, an illustration of some kind of like giraffine rabbuck, which I didn't recognize uh, from previous, uh, the original edition. And there's also a new illustration of the Night Stalker, Manambulus perhoridus, which is one of the best creatures in the book, this giant predatory bipedal bats. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, if you want to read about this, uh, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with Dougal Dixon's work and Afterman in particular. Check out on the Guardian website, check out um, Susanna Lydon's article, Speculative Biology understanding the past and predicting our future and this article is basically all about Dougal Dixon's after man and it's and and this new version this new edition but it talks about all yesterdays <laughs> so we're mentioned um and it talks about talks about a recent debate that happened in London and I'll come to that in a second so so there you go so Dougal Dixon after man and uh, this is not completely exclusive to the podcast because I've already mentioned it in the Tetrapods Audi Facebook group, but there might be there might be an event happening soon that's to do with the release of this book. That's all I'll say for now. Um, also in the world of news and two minute rule is meant to be keep an eye on the clock here, right? Uh huh. So as always, there's like. Since the last podcast, about three million new papers have appeared, which uh, is great when you're compiling a major work on the entirety of the vertebrate fossil record. Um, relevant things. So there's only two I'm going to discuss right now, and they're both mammal things. Uh-huh. So, what do you think of Akinox partinensis, John? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Okay, so have you ever heard about the Pleistocene giant cheetah, Achenox pardonensis? Mm, yeah, probably. Well, so this is a giant fossil cheetah, and it's known, it's got a pretty wide range. It's known from, um, like, France in the west to India and China and stuff in the east. It's uh, it's quite variable over its, so, you know, it's Plio Pleistocene, it's, it's around for like, you know, I think 2.5 million years, and it's uh, g- quite variable. And there have even been, you know, various subspecies of Pardonensis have been named. It's, it's twice the size of mm-hmm. extant cheetahs. It's talking about like an 80 kilo cheetah. Seems to be broadly proportioned like the modern cheetahs. So it's presumed, it's generally been presumed to be uh, sort of similar in, you know, morph- um, uh, like ecology behavior and so on 
um, audio, two minute things coming up. There's a, a new study that's just been published by Marco Chirin and colleagues in Nature Scientific Reports. Synchrotron radiation reveals the identity of the large village from Monte Argentario in the early Pleistocene Italy. Now, I still am bothered by the fact that people refer to like geological units as early. I mean, um, that's a subject for another time. But anyway, <laughs> we've this, done that one before. <laughs> we've done that one. But it's, uh, it's something I've got to get my head around because I've got to, Jesus Christ, I've got to get it sorted for this book. Um, people are people are talking about things coming from a place in the geological column as if it's as if it can be described as early or late. Sorry, tangent. This synchrotron analysis. They've got these beautiful, um, you know, like. Uh, renders of the skull um they say that Akinox pardonensis has got a bunch of features that make it look extremely similar and were previously thought like unique to pantera gombasagoensis this is the famous european jaguar regarded by some big cat fossil big cat experts as actually congeneric with pantera onca with the jaguar some people regard gombasagoensis as part of the jaguar species so they're saying that in Akinox pardonensis there's panthera uh, jaguar like characters and the crux of the paper is that that this cheetah isn't just like a bog standard pure cheetah if you will but that it's a cheetah that's got some panthera like characteristics and they're saying this means we need to re well we need to like you know get a better handle on what exactly this means as goes its ecology and hunting behavior and whatnot so they're saying that it's likely actually quite different from cheetahs as we've previously imagined them. it's not just doing the same thing as modern akinox modern cheetahs but right the reason i find sorry you no. want to say something no go ahead okay so uh th the reason i find this particularly interesting is that there's a second possibility which is that it's not actually a cheetah at all and there's a possibility which i've seen discussed informally online which is that maybe the panthera type characters of Pardonentis show that it's not a cheetah it is actually a panthera and it's convergently cheetah like and that strikes me as quite unlikely given how you know cheetah like it seems to be but mm. it's not it's now not impossible because okay you don't have to be a big cat expert to ask what is it that makes a cat cheetah like and it's long gracile limbs uh, it's predominantly, basically, basically, it's long gracile limbs and a, a face where, like, the cranium and the eyes and stuff are really big, but the snouty region is short and reduced and the teeth are smaller and, you know, the nostrils are particularly big and, you know, to do with, like, a shortening and lightening of the muzzle. And now think what could happen if a panthera cat or a pantherine cat, you know, a panthera-like cat, what would happen if that became like a cursorial specialist what what changes would it undergo and could it be that Akinox pardonensis is not actually a cheetah but mm. that it's a, a pantherine that's mimicking a cheetah and this is another case of us being duped having read the paper i do still think it is a true cheetah and that the author's interpretation that it's a, a cheetah that's got some panther like characters is more likely to be correct yeah um and those panthera-like characters are probably plesiomorphic, you know, yeah. probably primitive inherited features. Not that cheetahs and their relatives are particularly close to panthera, they're actually not in cat phylogeny, but uh, they probably are, we probably are talking about, you know, generic cat 
characters. So, yeah, I, I thought mean, it was quite interesting. Panthera, well, my understanding is a lot of those cats are, a lot of their traits are plesiomorphic compared to cheetahs, right? Cheetahs are the ones that have gone off on their own weird tangents. So anything that yeah, looks yeah. more like Panthera is just saying it's more like a normal cat. Yeah. And we've got we've got reason for thinking that the the cheetah like morphotype has been evolved uh, before anyway. You know, Marakinox, the so-called American cheetah, turns out not to be not to be a cheetah. See, this is this is what you asked me what I thought about it, and I didn't even recognise it. Say the say the genus name again. What Akinox? Akinox. Yeah, that's weird. I've never I've always read it as Asinonix in my head. Akinox. Let me. I need to see it written down. Akinonx. Akinoninx. How do you, How would you? Akinoninx. Uh. Well, I've always softened the C because it sounds better. Asinonix. Asinonix. <laughs> That's <laughs> you. Asinonix. <laughs> um. I'm not. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know Akinonix? why I say Akinonix. 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 <laughs> Because you're just Akinonx. disregarding that. Why? I am Akinonx. Yeah. Well, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> um, we, so long as we know what we're talking about, <laughs> that's what matters. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think if I've actually heard anyone else actually say it. Surely I have. See, this is what I've assumed. You've heard people talk about it, and I haven't. So I've just sure thought, I have. Yeah. Akinonx Jubatus, the cheetah. Akinonix. Okay. Okay, listeners, if you want to write in and tell us how you uh, say that word. So I guess, um, yeah, what is... Uh, obviously, cheetahs are doing something pretty extreme, right? They're, they're yeah, fastest <clears throat> land animal, aren't they? Probably still, by They've got, the, yeah, they've got the fastest top speed, yeah. but they, the average speed can be exceeded by a couple of artiodactyls. Yeah, yeah, but this tells you that they're doing something pretty extreme with their morphology and whatnot and it'd mm. be interesting if something twice as big could be doing the same thing yeah um i how much are they, do they have do they have like good skeletons or have they got like bits of stuff they bear in mind how many specimens there are i think collectively you're talking about representing a third to a half of the animal enough for you to have a pretty good handle on yeah. you know what it's what whole thing's like yeah, Do you but know, it's still been, probably um, not quite as good as you'd want to. Yeah, anyway, I don't know. It's, I think it's good enough though. But do you know where it's been mentioned in the dinosaur literature? This giant cheetah. Ah, uh, yes, it's in predatory dinosaurs of the world. That's right. Yeah. Or is it? You sure? I think it might be in the nineteen eighty-seven Greg Paul thing. No, it's in predatory <clears throat> dinosaurs of the world. Well, there's a cheetah in there, but that's not this one. That's a that's a North American cheetah. That's what was at the time called Akinonix <laughs> uh, Trumani, which is now Marakinonix, which is not a cheetah, which is a member of the Puma lineage. Instead, okay, Pumas are close to cheetahs, but um, yeah, the uh, American, so-called American cheetah, is a member of the. Yeah, it's not not technically a member of the cheetah lineage specifically, but Greg Paul uses the giant cheetah to say that say that. Okay, gonna quote Greg Paul here. Or paraphrase him. He says, "Some people say that a Tyrannosaurus couldn't run because it weighs, you know, ten tons." Yeah. Well, to those people, I say, um, just because you're familiar with stuff today doesn't mean it was always the case. For example, there were cheetahs twice the size 
of Bonchi's, and he uses that as an example. I, th- yeah. I think I, I'm, I could be getting slightly confused. That's basically what he says. Um, of course, you know, he was probably not fully correct on <laughs> basically all the things he said there. But um, uh, general, uh, you know, a whole load of study indicates that Tyrannosaurus is not capable of the the, the speeds that he and uh, Robert Backer, you know, claimed. But um, and 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 yeah, well, certainly the full sized ones. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Full-sized, whatever. Oh, yeah, over two tons and it starts to become a... Running becomes a real problem, I believe, is what yeah. the general rule is. Um, yeah, I can't find it. But I'm pretty sure it's in Predatory Dinosaurs of the World. I don't think he talks about cheetahs in his um, article thing. Okay, we're slightly over two minutes there. So very briefly, the second thing is a paper in PeerJ published in April 2018 by Joshua Samuels and colleagues. A new species of gulo from the early Pliocene grey fossil site, East United States, rethinking the evolution of wolverines. So wolverines are like the biggest of the mustelids. They can get up to about 20 kilos, I think. In fact, we've discussed wolverines at length before because we had some question uh, cash for question about um, who would win in a fight between a honey badger and a wolverine. Mm. Um, wolverines, of course, are, are big and shaggy and cold adapted, and the fossil record indicates that you know that's probably true for their history until now, because this new uh, study by Samuel Zatel they describe this uh, new uh, Pliocene um, uh, wolverine. Um, uh, I want to say it's species name, but I can't remember it, nor can I see it in the paper because it's not in the abstract or anywhere up front. <sighs> For the love of Christ. Because whoever, because that was a good rule to make, wasn't it? Yeah, don't mention it at the start of the paper. Yeah. You have to get deep, deep, deep into the guts of the paper. Gulo pseudorus. Pseudorus. What does that mean? Etymology. <laughs> Sidorus <laughs> from the Latin for sweaty. <laughs> right now, the whole story, the whole story behind this Wolverine is it comes from a time and a place when it's from Tennessee. Tennessee in the early Pliocene was was warm, warm and humid, and so the whole the whole interesting thing here. There's a lot of interesting stuff here, but the main thing is. This shows that wolverines don't have their roots in, like, you know, cold boreal climes, but that they originated in warm, humid climates. So, Sodorus <laughs> from the Latin for sweaty, in reference to the warm, humid climate present in the early Pliocene of Tennessee, referring to the typical boreal habitat. Relative to the typical boreal habitat that the modern taxonomy is inhabiting. So, the sweaty wolverine of Pliocene, Tennessee. There you go. So, uh, and there's a whole bunch of other cool stuff on mustelid evolution uh, in this uh, paper. Uh, they do find support for a close affinity between wolverines and martins, as in marties. The two lineages diverged around about seven million years ago in the um, uh, late Miocene with um, fishers. Fishers are now excluded from Marty's and like a whole bunch of molecular and morphological studies. Uh, Fishers, uh, Picania, are um, uh, the sister group to the Wolverine plus Martin clade, which is pretty cool. Okay, <clears throat> stop there. That paper was in PJ, PJ says so 100% open access. Sweaty Wolverines. Sweaty Wolverine. I like it. Um, what's new at Tetzu? 
this is this is a, just a shameless, shameless part of the podcast in which we get you to go and read the blog called Tetrapod Zoology, which is the bedrock of this entire endeavour. Um, did I speak last time about? Um, did I talk about my um, writings on Katrina Van Grau's next book, Unnatural Selection? You know, I don't remember. We should stop having remember. conversations that aren't in the podcast. You're right. Okay, Because so, we have talked uh, about it, but I don't know whether we've talked about it in the podcast. Yeah. So Katrina Van Grau uh, has published a well-known book, The Unfeathered Bird, and her next book is called Unnatural Selection, comes out later this year. Go and read the long article on Tetrapod's audio about that if you're interested. It's kind of like a preemptive article about what the book's going to be about because the book's not out yet. Then I also published um, some lengthy reviews of Ebeth and Evans's Hadrosaurs book, so a huge book devoted to duckbill dinosaurs. I wrote an article about the Sexual Selection Conference, which we're going to talk about a bit more in a minute. I wrote an article about buntings because... All the stuff on my mind, well, not all the stuff, but most of the stuff on my mind at the moment is about birds because of the textbook. And 21st of January is Tedgebot Georgie's birthday. <laughs> and it being May, it was when it was May 24th, I published the, the last of the birthday articles for uh, Tedgebot Georgie's 12th year. Been blogging for 12 years. Hmm. That doesn't seem to look as long as I thought. Didn't you? No, hang on. That, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, That is right, because it started, started in yeah. 2006. Mm. Still don't feel like I've covered anything. But, <laughs> um, and, and I don't want to just... It's very... Uh, no, tangent, tangent. I'll stop there, stop there. <clears throat> so, uh, so, yeah, that's... There's th- there were three birthday articles in 2018. Obviously, the first two published sort of in good time in January, but I couldn't finish the last one until recently. So so here we are in June, and I've got to publish a load more stuff in June. I haven't done any of that yet, but I will soon. That's a totally pointless part of the podcast. Maybe we shouldn't do that in the future. That's fine. News from the world of John and Aaron. So is there any news from the world of John? Probably, John? but I always forget. Um, yeah, talk about the Sexual Selection Conference. Sexual Selection Conference was held at uh, Chichley Hall in the beautiful Buckinghamshire countryside, and it was a two-day event. Chichley Hall is like a big stately manor, and whoa, what a, what a venue. It was just crazy. It was like staying in a stately home, and I uh, really enjoyed it. And there is an article on Tetrapod's Audio all about it, published uh, in uh, late late May. So go and read if you really want to know the, some of the details. It was a stately R- home, Darren, right? Yeah. like one. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It, 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 well, it, technically, it probably still is a stately home. Yeah, but the so Royal Society, yeah. the Royal Society, own this venue and yeah. now use it entirely. It's a devoted conference venue. Yeah, yeah. So there aren't many conference. And there's a lot of nice conference venues, but there aren't many where you literally go and stay in a stately home. Mm-hmm. Um, and this meeting was uh, 
it was uh, it was a mix of everything to do with the entire subject of sexual selection. For those of you who don't know, sexual selection is the entire evolutionary process in which organisms maximize their ability to pass on their genes to descendants. So everything to do with like the successful passing on of your genes, everything to do with sexual display and sexual competition and such. Sexual selection often operates in contradiction to natural selection. We have discussed this before in a dim and distant episode of the podcast. Most work on sexual selection obviously involves guppies fruit flies rhino beetles you know that sort of stuff but um there's also people working on sexual selection in like you know microorganisms and plants and fungi and everything and there was there were talks on all those things uh, at the conference but then of course it's also of special interest to paleontologists because we have all these dead animals where we cannot observe any aspect of their behavior directly and we see them having these often bizarre extravagant structures and it's like they remind us of structures that in living animals function in sexual selection or have a role in sexual selection so it's like did you know for example does triceratops have a horn have horns and a frill due to the pressures of sexual selection and people are trying to test this all the time and gather new data you know analyzing various models and that was well represented in the meeting there were like you know four or five talks by paleontologists on uh, metazoic dinosaurs and uh, fossil hoofed mammals and stuff like that so like i say it's, it's all covered in the article but it the fact that it was all these people together talking about the same thing and you know people work, who work on insects are considering you know what some of this stuff might mean for elaborately crested and horned dinosaurs and vice versa you know was was great mm-hmm. so as i mentioned last time um uh I was looking forward to seeing Kevin Padian. I, I spent a good good time with, with Kevin Padian. It was good to catch up with him. He is a complete outlier in terms of uh, what he thinks he th- what he thinks sexual selection is. So, so far as I can tell, he's basically the only active biologist in the world who doesn't think that sexual selection is what everyone else thinks it is. He has a totally different definition of he thinks we sh- he thinks we we're all interpreting sexual selection wrong, and that sexual selection isn't what I've just described. That it's something else. He thinks that it's the um, he thinks based on specific wording used in some editions of Origin of Species and, uh, and others of Darwin's books. He thinks that se- <laughs> so can see so can so can you hear that? Oh yeah, yeah 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 yeah. So 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 Kevin says. That according to the wording that Darwin uses, sexual selection has to be interpreted as the evolutionary process that results in the evolution of sexual dimorphism. That is what sexual selection is and that it cannot be what everyone else says it is, which is the evolution of what I said, the, 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 anything to do with the evolution of promoting genetic um, contribution to the next generation, promoting the successful transfer of genetic material through, you know, mates, mating success, basically anything to do with mating success. So, and he and he gave a talk, and um, um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I, I, I like I like Kevin. I get on with him well. He really likes you, you know, from from your work on pterosaurs. You had nothing but good things to say about you. Unlike everyone else in the world, there's always that. Oh my god! But, um, but um, myself and colleagues, so people like Rob Nell, Dave Hone, Innes Cuthill, we've argued against Kevin's uh, sexual selection comments in several different papers. Um, 
and obviously we're mostly interested in this is just interested in like mesozoic dinosaurs non-bird dinosaurs we argue we argue with kevin all the time but <laughs> at this meeting of course he's not just talking to a small band of paleontologists and as i've said before when you think of all the people that work on uh, sexual selection paleontologists comprise maybe like 0.05 percent of the of the scientist interest in sexual selection the vast majority of sexual work on sexual selection is on extant insects fishes humans blah blah blah. Uh, so kevin is talking to an audience not thousands of people it's in a small audience you know it's like i don't know 50 people or something but he's talking to an audience of people that that work on sexual selection across the board and are there people air punching an agreement with him and whooping <laughs> not quite <laughs> it's like is it? no <laughs> no no Mm. there's lots of reasons for disagreeing with with him and um yeah at the, at, the, at the basic level at the very bedrock of this debate no that's it's not exactly what darwin said it's not what he meant and even if he did mean well maybe he was wrong <laughs> he's like well, it's not how we use sexual selection today and there's stuff that darwin says that is now objectively wrong yeah there's a whole bunch of stuff in origin that's now you know disregarded or known to be incorrect so um yeah uh, yeah <clears throat> so there's a whole bunch of cool dinosaur stuff and at the meeting and like i said i got some uh, some some write-up of it uh, at the blog and even the stuff on insects and fishes uh, and and other animals was was quite interesting and a fantastic venue i, I would really like to have another meeting there so uh tetsukon 2025 <laughs> 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 Uh uh huh. Now the um yeah. The Brian yeah. Ford thing. Yeah, we now we need to talk about that. Yeah. And my thinking here is that you were there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's hear let's hear you talk about this. Off you go. Yeah, okay. So to set it up for those that don't know, but I don't think there's probably that, that many that you know, you'd have to have been living under a rock. A Tetsu rock to not know what this is. Um, Brian Ford is a a molecular biologist, I believe. I he's don't got a think qualification. He's, even that. he's not even that. Okay, I don't think so. I think he talks about cells, right? But I'm really struggling to find. Okay, exactly well, what Brian he... Ford is some dude, right? Who has <laughs> a long history of giving talks on sciencey subjects, and writing popular books about sciencey subjects and he's come up with a theory about dinosaurs it, that they all lived in water to support their weight which is familiar to anyone that knows the history of dinosaur science this was essentially the orthodoxy for the early part of the 20th century the very large dinosaurs were virtually incapable of walking on land and had to support their weight in shallow water up r- roughly up to their what shoulders yeah yeah something like this and so surprisingly brian ford has managed to land himself a um fairly prestigious book contract with dorling kindersley is that right Uh, harper 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 collins Collins, okay harper collins better even and you darren decided that if he was going to do a series of talks uh, to promote his book, then he should be counted and asked to talk alongside him. 
which well to, to be clear no i didn't decide he should be counted i was invited oh okay to that's good counsel. oh sorry yeah. i thought you had actually sent an email asking to no okay all right that's good though that they th- thought they should do that i guess and so yeah so there was this was one of the early ones the first ones is he doing other talks i don't know it would seem not at the moment. Okay, so this is the only one, possibly. It was the book launch, mm. and we all went along to see him talk and then your rebuttal of his talk, and uh, it was interesting. So, like a lot of these people, I thought he would be a... I thought he was a crank, right? Obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't think his ideas are a bit batty, and he doesn't seem to have a lot of evidence. But I thought he would be, like a lot of these guys, somewhat of an affable crank and very detail-focused. And I thought we would get into this weird conversation with him being basically um, polite and constantly delving into crazy detail about stuff that we have to keep pulling back from to say, well, but look at the bigger picture, look at the bigger picture. And instead what we got which I was not expecting at all, was he was quite rude. He was constantly hurling... He was making little barbed comments to you constantly, like before and during and after his talk. And he was incredibly rude to what amounted to the audience about paleontologists. And there there was swearing involved... And I found all this very surprising. He was not at all what I would term a enthusiastic science crank, like a Bigfoot enthusiast or a, even a Dave Peters. He was a oddly rude. And <laughs> I think he do, he doesn't necessarily believe his own idea. I think it's an idea for a book because this is how he makes his living, is my impression. This was designed to create controversy and be a thing that furthers his reputation as a science writer, not necessarily an idea that he's wedded to, that he thinks is really good, and that he's got a lot of evidence for, or he thinks he's got a lot of evidence for, because he didn't have very much evidence. He didn't have very much. He had a lot of rhetoric about how stupid everyone was Mm. in... Even worse, word, much worse words than that, and but not a lot of deep dive into what things are, which you would get from a, a lot of cranks like, well, Dave Peters and other people. So yeah, mm. that's my summary. Oh, oh, sorry. And then getting on to your talk, of course, um, you did a a really good job, which was challenging because he'd been so rude <laughs> to maintain. Um, you know, being calm and not to retaliate, and you manage that well. And also, I think the one thing that could have gone wrong is that you came, you could have come across as being very cold and uh, just sort of listing facts, and and you didn't come across like that at all. It was a passionate talk without being a rude talk, which is, I think, exactly what it needed to be. Um. And then afterwards, we had the uh, Q&A. And thankfully, 
I was we had a little break before the Q and A, and I thought this is this is going to be a bloodbath. This is going to be really really bad. Um, there's going to be shouting and swearing, and but luckily it all t- toned down a little bit. And um, the Q and A was was interesting. We got some good questions, um, and it was it was a lot calmer. He did compare himself to, um, you know. Galileo and people like this, which was good. Um, mm. A nice little question that got him to do that. But yeah, uh, it was, yeah, so that's my summary. It was kind of an interesting evening, not what I expected. Uh, I thought you did a really good job. I thought he did an exceptionally poor job. Um, <clears throat> and I hope his book is not a success. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for your words. I appreciate it. Um, this is the third time I've heard him give a talk. Yeah. And it's the it's the uh, it does it does seem to me like an act that he is. Yeah. You know, he was. I think I think he kind of knew. Or he said to me that he felt the audience was against him, and so I think that he put on a performance to basically be. Now, this is a weird strategy to me. I, I can't personally understand how someone would think this way. I'm When I speak in front of an audience, I'm paranoid. I always think there's people, those specific individuals that are, you know, glaring at me with ha- hatred. And I sort of feel like I should be more humble and try and be, you know, mm. be nice during the talk. And then I find out afterwards that I've totally misread that, that I've, I've often, I've often, when I've had specific individuals in mind, you know, one specific person that seems to be staring at me and then it turns out, no, they're actually like, you know, they come up to you afterwards and they're like wow I, was, I loved your talk I loved your talk are you single but um uh, whereas he his his thing was the opposite to that it was not being it was not being nice and and and, and uh, become a friend of the audience it was to deliberately be as obnoxious and awful as possible I felt that he I felt he did himself no favors in that talk he deliberately came across as a complete ass he was he was rude deliberate as you've said he really, you know, was deliberately insulting us, and he he thought that he had to do that because he thought that he thought that I had invited along a, a set of buddies that I'd told all my buddies to come along and heckle him and be mean to him, and therefore he had to be mean back to us. That's the that's the impression I got. And he said to me in the Q and A, it was either just before the talk or it was in the Q and A afterwards. He said, "This is the first time I've given an audience where they all hate my guts," and I'm like, "Well." I advertised this talk, I did advertise it, but I think that if you were to advertise a talk on this subject, that it's a talk on dinosaurs and it's, you know, controversy between, you know, two air quotes experts discussing this subject, that is the audience you would get, yeah? You yeah. would get a bunch of people interested in dinosaurs that live in the southern, <laughs> southern half of the UK. Um, those are the people that would turn up. So, no, I did not. I think the only person I specifically you know, invited who was there because of me was Tony, my wife. Um, everyone else was there because, like you, and you know, they were like, oh, that's interesting. I want to go along to that. So uh, I, I felt he totally misread that. And, yeah, I've, I've just what – what an asinine performance. Did not do himself any favors. He – became an enemy enemy of the audience you know um sort of like I say almost deliberately he also was really rude to the um to the organizers mm. they were really unhappy with him which was really obvious i felt which is <laughs> what a stupid thing to do um does he actually believe in this model i mean you, you've just touched on this I, I, and I, again i 
find it really hard to, to read this. Um, at this stage, given that the book is out, this book I think is like 500 pages. It's, a, it's quite a weighty tome. And uh, now that the book is out, it's like he's wedded to this. He's committed to this and he can't. So I didn't I didn't push him in. You know, you think of some of the, the, the lines of evidence I covered in my talk. So not only do we have compelling anatomical evidence that these animals, which he says were aquatic, were absolutely not. They were clearly fully terrestrial based on anatomy. We don't just have that. We also have, you know, stomach contents, trackway data and oxygen isotopes. Isotopes, I think, are quite hard to explain away. A lot of the other stuff you can explain away, you know, if you want to, you can explain it away. Oh, yeah, well, the animal the animal looks terrestrial, but there's loads of modern animals that look terrestrial but don't do, you know, there's animals that don't do what we think they would based on their anatomy. That's always the, the get out to this. But something like isotope geochemistry, good luck just explaining that one away. It's like if I really did press him on that, he might, might possibly have had some, you know, some conciliation but the fact that he's now wedded to this because he's produced this book and the book itself which of course i've looked at um 500 pages it doesn't really get to his thesis his specific thing about aquatic dinosaurs until i think page 298 which is what it's like what the hell is the book even about it looks great it's very well produced as you'd expect for a book by harper collins they are one of the world's you know, most famous and prestigious publishers. But it just seemed that like the first 300 pages of the book are just some tour of the history of science, uh, maybe with some, maybe with some, you know, link to paleontology, but it, it wasn't clear to me flicking through it on the day. And um, I was like, where the, where the hell is the dinosaurs? And then when you get to the bit about the dinosaurs, it's this weird sort of pseudoscience. Really, really strange. So you have to wonder... With all, you know, without being rude to Brian Ford, he's obviously at an advanced stage of his you know, career and life. And um, is it that he's done this just to stir up, just to be the centre of attention? Because it's clearly worked, you know, the amount of publicity this thing has got or gotten. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> in joke, he um, he was. So we were both asked in the Q&A, do you believe in the models that you're promoting? And so... Okay, I did what I always do, which is go off on this, you know, silly disclaimer at the start about, you know, use of the word belief as a, as a word. We've we've covered it before on the podcast, I think, you know, whether we should even use the word belief when talking about science. But my basic take home is that while I do concede that in future we might learn things that could show that I'm wrong, right now my understanding of all the data we've got shows that my model is, you know, the valid one based on the evidence we've got. These dinosaurs were not aquatic, they were terrestrial, based on the evidence we have to hand. And his, you know, he congratulated me on the thing I said about belief. You know, we shook hands at that point, which was quite nice of him. But um, his, his, his point otherwise was that basically to say that, look, I wanted a debate and we've had a debate and this is all about having a debate. And that made it that one moment very brief and easy to forget. That one moment in the entire evening made me think that he was saying that this isn't, look, this isn't what I really believe He's just, I wanted to just talk about this. I wanted to just, which reminds me very much of mm. Jack Horner's scavenging T-Rex thing, where yeah. for years Jack Horner was giving talks about, he thinks that, that Tyrannosaurus was not an active predator, but that it only consumed carcasses. And there are cases where people went up to and went up to him and challenged him, said, I think that's crap for these reasons. And he would say, look, this is just a hypothesis. 
it seems to be the same thing. You're not, you're not actually really presenting something that you think is backed by evidence. You're just doing it just as a point of view because it's made you famous. And my thinking is that that is what's going on here, that he is not really... Uh, is this is this is this this also reminds me of Trump when people say that <laughs> does Trump you know how can Trump say these things maybe he just says it to distract us from other things we should be focusing on no it's just because he's an idiot and he says the thing that comes to the front of his mind and it's now very difficult with Brian Ford to work out what the deal is is he given that he's got this book given that he's committed to this point of view given that he seems to be presenting it in all sincerity as that is what he's you know adopting is that what he actually thinks reality is shaped like or is he just doing it for a debate and while and to therefore be the center of attention and while he said that it's for a debate thereby implying that it's to make him the center of attention i can't help but feel that no he really does actually endure you know he, he's he's not he's not backing away from this because when he was you know all the little details that were challenged in the q a at the end um he would never concede it's like he's still right to the end, right until the, you know, right and right when the audience is dispersing, he is still saying that that the paleontologists got everything wrong. Because someone said, well, why do they have, you know, why are there horns and elaborate structures in dinosaurs? <laughs> and his answer is nobody knows. Paleontologists haven't got a clue. They can't answer it. it. Doesn't make any sense. Because his thing is, you know, none of that stuff makes sense for these aquatic animals. And of course, the response to that is, well, yeah. we think based on based largely on analogy, based on living animals, you know, they're clearly, you know, displaying and fighting with one another, you know, as, as, it, as is pretty flipping obvious. Um, so, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he sold in that, that, that. And as you've said, that was the book launch. That was the launch. Do you know how many copies of his book he sold? Nope one mm. sold one so i'm now concerned that HarperCollins don't like me <laughs> because never <laughs> mind i have within recent months tried making a couple of deals with HarperCollins, and i now can't talk to some of the people involved because of this is because of what's happened um but yeah i don't want this book i don't want i'm not going to buy it i think it's a piece of crap i think his entire argument is a piece of crap i think he's a charlatan um, and I think this is, um, you know, miseducation of the worst kind. And it's embarrassing that it's gotten as much traction and coverage as it has. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, but it didn't really need to go down this way in that if he was a different sort of person... You know, we're not against outsiders and people with weird ideas. It's belligerent people who are everyone else is an idiot. They're um, the ones that are more difficult to stomach, right? And he was definitely like that. He was belligerent and kind of weirdly condescending, and yeah. So he did actually just just to put this on record, he did actually say during his talk that all paleontologists were like idiot man babies, and he like was posting screen grabs of tweets and things, and he was saying all idiots. Literally, I'm literally using his words. He dropped an f bomb. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was unbelievable, and the, the I I totally agree with you. The the worst cranks are the ones who are 
well, maybe what maybe what it is that makes them that make them cranks is that they are absolutely seemingly convinced that they are better than everyone else and that everyone else is an idiot. And that seems to be his whole shtick here, that he is right. He's got the truth and that we're all deluded fools, babies and idiots. To use his just, words, right? Yeah. This is not exaggeration. Words. This is not no. hyperbole. In fact, it's somewhat toning it down because there was, as you say, F-bombs in there. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. Enough about him. Yeah. Also, although finally, the entire event was filmed. Um, now, I think it would be better if the whole thing was released so that people can see his talk and then see my response. Yeah. I think it's a bit weird to just have my response because mm-hmm. then it lacks context. What do you think? We don't have permission to release his side. Can we do it anyway? Don't think so. It's a private event. We didn't get his permission to record his talk. Or did we have it recorded? Display, yeah. Oh, okay. That's that's unfortunate. I didn't think of that. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I suppose my talk makes sense on its own, but um, I do wish that his talk could be released because it's just unbelievable. Can always try. I mean, um, Harper Collins might want. Never know. I thought they did. I thought they did. I thought they wanted a copy of it. Well, yeah, but do they want to release it? That's the question. I mean, so maybe. Well, I don't know. Maybe should ask. Yeah, contact there. This is out of my hands. I mean, I was nothing to do with the filming or anything, obviously. But um, yeah, no, I think I think both things should be. I think the whole thing should be released so people can see exactly what he says. But you're the only one with the email contacts and stuff. I don't know anyone that's an email. All right. I'll chase it up because I I did ask Mr. Ford if um, if he was happy with it being recorded, and he said absolutely he was. And the, the only disclaimer he gave during the talk was he said you're not to. He said to the audience, "You're not to breathe a word of this." But that was prior to the publication of his book, and his book is supposed to have been officially published at the end of May. Uh-huh. So I understand that. As so far as I can tell, he wasn't ashamed of his what he said he was quite happy with his presentation so far as i could tell <laughs> <laughs> so, oh i did a good job <laughs> i showed them those effing idiots those idiot man babies so there will be there's i, I don't i i'm in a quandary about this because i don't like giving people like this constant attention you're giving them what they want and you're promoting you know you're encouraging people to learn about their crap Right. But on the other hand, when they do have so when they're promoted so well and so widely, I mean, a book by Harper Collins, that's a big deal. It you know, you need to be it needs to be responded to. So there are plans for, you know, a publication that does respond to him. I, I, I can't see this is the end of it. But oh God, what a waste of everyone's time. Right. So and, let's stop talking about it. then. <laughs> Dinosaurs HTLE second edition cover. Yeah, so uh, it's been this has been discussed for a while. The second edition of Dinosaurs: How They Lived and Evolved, my book with Paul Barrett, the Natural History Museum book on dinosaurs. Um, the second edition, um, I was I wasn't going to talk about this until it's published in September, but um, it's now available for pre-order. <sighs> I hate that word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on um, soon we're going to have pre-pre-orders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's now available uh, 
for for, for pre-order on uh, digital websites and stuff, and um, and and those places show the new cover. So the second, it's not called the second edition. It's called like a revised and updated edition or something. But it is technically a second edition because um, Paul and I made uh, like hundreds of changes to it. Numerous small tweaks where there are small mistakes, pretty much all made by me. Uh, various changes to cladograms and diagrams, some replacement illustrations because the existing ones were, you know, inferior or now known to be wrong. There's a a section. It's only like one or two paragraphs, but there is now a section on the whole Ornithoskeleta thing because, of course, that happened while this book was in production. And um, the cover replacing the sad-eyed, awesome bro wide-mouthed giganotosaurus thing otherwise seen in jurassic world not kidding it does actually appear literally in the film um there is now a a bob nichols um tianulong a fuzzy tianulong eating a ginkgo and a lot of work went into that piece numerous drafts numerous different versions we discussed loads and loads of you know technicalities and little issues and tweaks and things and uh, and even then probably still got some things wrong it's really hard to get things absolutely right the limb proportions uh, it seems might be off but i didn't know that um i thought that i thought everything was working uh, as it should but you know it's amazing amazing uh, piece and it's a a good looking cover and already there's some people that absolutely hate it and say so i don't understand what the hell you're you're doing there and other people that are like oh jesus thank you yes <laughs> so so when i give talks on dinosaurs and i talk about our whole the changing paradigm and you know why jurassic world's a piece of crap and why um you know our current understanding of dinosaurs is very different from the old school conventional view it's now fun to show this is the cover of the first edition look at that thing yeah. and this is the cover the, the, what a contrast and that is the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great it's a great picture. All right. Uh what's yes. next? A cash uh, for a cash for question. Well, you've written it as question for cash. <laughs> is that not what we call them? It's called cash <laughs> for questions. Okay, whatever. Right. So we did say that there would be some that we um yep. might have missed that slipped through the cracks. Very okay. rare things that happened right. to happen on the podcast. But Albert Chen, um, regular listener and uh, contributor to the Tet's Universe, uh, reminds me of one that was sent in <laughs> and it's been lost. So he sent it again, and guess what? <laughs> I've lost, lost it. Lost it again. Oh my god! He sent it two or three times, and. Uh, uh, I don't know where it is, but I, I can remember what it was about. It was like, basically, it was, why no marine rodents? Given that rodents have done everything. There are flying rodents and treetop rodents and underground rodents and aquatic rodents of many kinds. Rodents have taken to aquatic life probably, at a guess, I'm going to say, like, probably like 15 times independently. So not just like familiar ones like beavers and muskrats, but there are also, um, you know, numerous swimming mice uh, murids, you know, um, mice slash rats of various kinds. There's voles, water voles. The muskrat is a water vole, big water vole. Um, so why haven't rodents taken to marine life? And fairly brief answer. This is I'm not going to string this out. Um, there are certainly littoral rodents. So there are like shore foraging rodents. There are populations of like the brown rat that eats. Uh, marine algae and marine crustaceans and stuff that, that that make their living in that way on beaches uh, and they will paddle at the edge of the sea and you know swim out a couple of meters to get you know carrion or bits of floating 
bread or whatever the hell they <laughs> they want to eat at the edge of the water. But there aren't any that have that have become uh, marine specialists, and um, I can't think of like uh, any good tidy explanation for this. But the thing that does come to mind is that um, marine um, marine mammals need to be above a certain size for reasons of uh, heat loss. Yeah. But then why can't you get tropical ones? There is there is some research done on uh, calculating the smallest possible size for things like seals and cetaceans. And it's worked out that uh, for reasons of heat loss and uh, surface to volume ratio, things like dolphins and seals can't be smaller than like round about a meter, which is which is true. You know, if you think of the smallest ones we know of. There are there are a couple of like really small dolphins mm-hmm. like Cetalia, the the um, the Takushi, the South American uh, estuarine dolphin that's like I don't know about one and a half meters, one point three meters. The Vaquita, the um, Gulf of um, Gulf of uh, the, the the porpoise on the coast of Mexico that's da- just about to go extinct because mm-hmm. there's like about twenty of them left. Mm-hmm. Sad story that is. Um, yeah, those are those are the smaller cetaceans, one point three meters ish, and then there's you know some little seals about that sort of size. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's the thing. Maybe you like rodents. So the only rodents the point and so, so like a small rodent, like a rat sized rodent, probably can't adapt to aquatic life because it would lose too much heat. I guess I don't know. So in that case, like uh, a, a rodent could only be a sea rodent. If it was like more than, you know, bigger than like a, what was that? Um, sea mink, bigger than like a sea mink. So bigger than like sort of 60 centimeters. And then it's like, well, which rodents are that size? Most rodents are dinky. Most, you know, average size of rodents is like 15 centimeters or less. So if you're going to have like a, a sea rodent, it's got to be big ancestrally. And there's only a handful of rodent lineages that are big ancestrally, you know, capybaras and beavers and whatnot. And for reasons of history, history, I was going to say historicity, which is just pointless because that's not what I'm talking about. But for reasons of history, they just aren't in coastal places. They just aren't, okay? In theory, they could be, but they just aren't. So for that reason, they haven't adapted to marine conditions, but maybe they will in the future. So, right. I don't know. I've got some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, we get this these questions a lot, don't we? Why does this thing not do this thing? Yeah. And I think this... I think there's a bit of a stock answer to all of them. Some things were already doing that thing, and you had to do it better to get in, right? And so what what niches are we looking for these rodents to fill that mm. aren't already filled by something that's already doing it? Mm. And what opportunity do they have to get in there? Maybe they've just never had the opportunity because they're not, they're not starting from the best place. Mm-hmm. Um, they're bit small sure you can solve that by getting bigger but you've got to compete with other things on the way and i just think that you know a lot of the time this just doesn't happen it's just because there are already things there (laughs) and they're already good at what they do right most things are pretty good at what they do and to displace them you've either got to wait for them to go extinct and then rush in there or or outcompete them somehow, and both of those are sort of happenstance or difficult. So I think that's probably it. I think that rodents just don't start from the place that is the best place to get into a marine niche, and there are already things there. So 
Done. Yep, I'd be happy with that. And I'm hoping I haven't misremembered Albert's question because it's possible that I have, but I think that was the gist of it. Thank you for the question, Albert, and apologies for the delay and for the shoddy answer and for misremembering it. (laughs) 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 Although it was a shoddy answer. John's answer was good. Um, If there are more uh, cash for questions, then – or questions for cash, as I like to say. (laughs) (laughs) If there are more, then – yeah, 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 yeah. Send them in. Bloody I hell. mean, the whole thing is completely misnamed anyway, because it's answers for cash, isn't it? It is. But do you remember it's inspired by a, a, a thing in the House of Commons? Uh, cash yes, for questions. Cash for questions. Um, popular tat. I haven't seen any of these things. Yeah. Well, like we're we're discussing them as a public service announcement, not because. Okay. Not because Darren and John need to go into them in depth, because right. they're all milestone cultural events. He says. I'm joking totally. Okay, so, uh, and I meant to do some homework on these, and I totally haven't. So, uh, Lost in Space was a Netflix series. Yeah. That Lost in Space, of course, is a you know, famous Danger Will Robinson thing from Christ decades back. Something I've, I don't want to see mean, but I've, I'll, you know, never been interested in it. Never caught my attention or anything. So well, I it's thought that I should campy watch. sixty sort of stuff, right? I mean, yeah. campy sixty thing. Yeah, none of those really interest me. Oh, I suppose I watched all of Star Trek, the original yeah. Star Trek. Um, so this was like a rebooting and, you know, the trailers and stuff looked really good. And they've released one season so far. I've watched all of it. And, you know, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was all right. I didn't think it was great. I've seen people, you know, raving over it and said how, you know, how tightly done it was and the the, characteriz- the characterization, the, the you know, all the stuff. Um, and, and it was just okay. So the main character was... The robot. Well, spoilers, by the way, big spoilers coming up. So, Robbie the robot, there is a robot. But the story in this is that there's like an evil kind of race of killer robots that destroy the sort of mothership that these characters, the Robinson family, come from. And then when they crash on this Earth like planet, uh, the boy, Will Robinson, I think, finds like a dismembered one. And and he like helps it and repairs it, and then it becomes reprogrammed, and it's his friend. And that robot was sort of, and and it becomes kind of more of like a human shape, humanoid shape, and that sort of becomes his friend. And that that robot was meant to be like the main character, but uh, or kind of. <laughs> I just like I say, it was okay. It just didn't. I didn't. I'm struggling to remember bits of it, apart from the, the, the bits that I thought were silly. It was okay. There was some interesting creature design in it. There were some weird, suspiciously tetrapod-like creatures on the planet. There's a bit when they're attacked by some kind of vaguely Raosukian, um quadrupedal predators of some kind, which just attack them for no reason, as animals do. Uh, and some of the sciencey stuff in it was really dumb. Like, they're on a planet where it's so cold that come nightfall, it's so cold that one of the characters, she is in a, for some reason, she's in a pool, in a spacesuit. You're not like somebody you know, swimming or anything. She's she's doing a job in this water pool. And again, I've forgotten all the details. And then suddenly it's nighttime and the temperature drops so quickly that the entire <laughs> entire pool turns to solid ice and she's trapped in the solid ice do you know how cold it has to be for water to like of more than a meter depth to flash freeze solid when the people above the water aren't even wearing space helmets and everything and they're fine it's like i'm no expert on <laughs> the the uh the thermal dynamics of water or indeed of 
the mechanics of temperature, blah, 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 blah. But even mm. I'm thinking, nah, 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 that's, yeah. that's kind of stupid. And then they have, they have like a warm glove, like the robot. Now, the robot is able to warm its hands, and the robot melts the ice just by warming its hands. And that, stuff like that is like, come on. But the baddie character in it, and <laughs> you can tell, again, I've really done my homework on this, the baddie character in this, uh, there's a baddie character in the original Lost in Space, and he's this like creepy old man guy, right? <laughs> well, in the new Lost in Space, it's not a creepy old man guy. It's like a really kind of likable and quite cool woman person, <laughs> and she's great. And uh, whatever she's called, oh my god, I got to find out now. So this is this is the worst kind of podcasting. <laughs> Lost in Space. I thought this cast. was a public service announcement. This is just you talking about television. I haven't even seen these so, things. So, Dr. Zachary... Dr. Zachary... Okay, thanks for not showing me the whole answer. She's played by Parker Posey, who I like a lot. I think she was, I think she was great. Uh, so, she's the best thing in it. In fact, she's the only reason I watched it, because of Parker Posey. <clears throat> so, there you go. Lost in space. <laughs> um, I, I just thought that... Okay, and also... Uh, this is from months back because I'm a huge fan of Cloverfield. We discussed Cloverfield in one of the earliest episodes of yeah. the podcast. So I made the mistake of watching the Cloverfield Paradox. I've mentioned it two or three times on the podcast. I was waiting for you to see it, but then I also thought you shouldn't see it because you'll hate yeah, it. Yeah, you told me it's not just to see it. Awful. Yeah, it's, it's just awful. awful. So have you seen the film um, um, it's Unforgettable? The Event Horizon. Have you seen Event Horizon? Uh, yes. I don't okay, It's a space it horror well. film. Yeah, yeah. It's a space horror film where a ship called the Event Horizon disappears for years, reappears off the shoulder of Saturn or Jupiter, and, uh, and, has, and has been to a part of the universe where the laws of physics don't apply, and the, the crew on the ship have, like, gone mad and killed each other and permitted all, you know, all, and now it's like a ghost ship, weirdy ship, weird stuff happens on it. Have you seen the film Life? No, I don't think I have. Well, that is like a, a similar space horror film where uh, a bunch of astronauts discover like a... Uh, I've, again, I've forgotten all the details. It's been a while since I've seen it. But they discover some like little living blobby thing and it, and it turns into like a sort of hand-sized little petal-shaped creature. But then it turns evil and it breaks out and it grows to like the size of a person and it sort of kills them more in horrible ways and it's got this it's got this kind of thing like plan as in the thing from the, the film the thing it's got this thing like plan to sort of take over the rest of life okay well the Cloverfield paradox is an unholy mating of those two films life and event horizon so basically it's a stupid awful space horror film it's not well done it's got no connection whatsoever to the other cloverfield films cloverfield and 10 cloverfield lane um it's just like a stupid sort of space horror film i I thought it was rubbish (laughs) i thought it was rubbish should i watch it Uh, and we can discuss it properly well if you if you want to but i've basically said everything that needs to be said about it all right so because like people people just die in horrible ways for no reason Mm -hmm. they like like one of the characters who is the Irish guy from the IT crowd, <laughs> so, so he's making jokes all the time, which is not the tone that's right for a horror film. He, um, well, no, that's not right. It can be. It can be. Okay, let me tell you, in this case, it definitely is not. 
There's a bit when he's in the corridor, and for some reason, they use they use this. They keep on showing how in this world, in the world of the Cloverfield Paradox, whatever the ship's called, I can't remember what it's called. Um, whenever they need to stick things together, like they need to bolt a door shut or you know whatever, they use this like these like metallic nanoparticles, and so they sort of use it as a glue. And there's bits in the film where the nanoparticles come loose and um, kind of form like a shape and they turn into like a weapon or something and, and kill people. So one of the characters gets his arm cut off and then, and then the arm's like walking around by itself and oh god, it's just, it's just, it's just awful. Right. So why is it, what link does it have to the whole Clover thing? None. They basically made a space horror film and then said, we'll have that as part of the Cloverfield franchise because people know the name Cloverfield and, and at least some of them will you know, watch it for that reason. Like me, I watched it because it's got the name Cloverfield in it. The la- Okay, spoiler, 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 spoiler. The last five seconds of the film, the uh, emergency pod returns to Earth from, you know, what this is like, probably one survivor, I can't even remember. Probably like the, yeah, the main female character, she's the lone survivor. So they they were definitely weren't thinking of alien or anything like that, and um, and her husband on the phone is screaming at her to or screaming to whoever over the phone, you don't return her to Earth. It's not fair because of all these things, all these creatures. Because for some reason things have gone bad on Earth, and as she returns to Earth, you see her little pod shoot through the atmosphere and go through the clouds, and you see the clouds, and then. Up pops the head of a giant clover monster. And it's a clover monster that's like about 100 times bigger than clover in the original Cloverfield. So that's your link to to Cloverfield. (laughs) And that's the only good bit of the film. So, uh, yeah, I I really didn't like it. But you can watch it if you want. It's bad. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give... How many stars out... We give things stars out of five? Ten. You, You complained that five was not enough. That you needed more well, subtlety. Then I'll you kept it. going five at like three and three quarters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Well, okay, I'm going to one star, whatever rating the scheme Wow, was. that's really one low. Star. Right. Now, we have to... You'll love this. We have to why talk about... Why do we about talk about this? Well, I don't Infinity understand War. why we have to because talk about it. Avengers Infinity War, because it's so huge. It's like the biggest film of all time. It's like it's the, the first. Case. It's the, it's the first. I believe it's the first film to make a billion dollars on opening weekend. It's like I could be wrong. I've seen it three times in the cinema. <laughs> I really, really liked it. And of course, it's this mashing together of the Avengers storyline with the Guardians of the Galaxy storyline, also bringing in Spider Man and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And it's, anyone and it's who all likes about, this film is an idiot. Well then. <laughs> Well, then I'm Captain You're Idiot. Captain <laughs> Idiot. Because I loved it. And I look God, to people, it. can we just stop with this? Just stop. We've had what? It's... We've had a good 15-year run of this crap. Enough. Nope. Not talking about I, this anymore. I think the general message is that people like these films and they're going to keep on making them. World, and that this flash, might be world is full of idiots. Right, <laughs> let's move on. No, this. No, we're going to talk about this a bit more. This no! serves. This I serves even, as like a. <laughs> I don't know what the, this segment is. Things Darren has seen. 
<laughs> yes, yes, that's what Darren, we're going to call it. Darren summarises <laughs> television in film. Do you know? Do you know how Infinity War ends? I just don't care. But the death of ends. all superheroes ever, and therefore there'll never be another film again. Yes, please, please. <laughs> yes, everybody dies at the end, apart from the bad guy. Well, okay, that's not that's not exactly true. Half of them die. It's still not the end of them, is it? The bad guy wins, and he kills half of all life in the universe. Unfortunately, or fortunately, we already know that most of the characters in the film have got sequels that are in production, and the film ends, post-credits spoiler, with um, Nick Fury calling in a superhero who's got so much power that she can undo all the damage. <laughs> yeah, such a great drama when you can just... Captain Marvel. Call in the time travellers and fix it, right? I mean, just really... Yep. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. So you, so you haven't seen it yet, then? I'm not going to see it. What <laughs> is the... What are we going to go see um, Jurassic World... Two. Okay, I have no interest in going to see. I'm not. I'm not being spiteful or malicious or you know hating on the franchise. But the, there's a bunch of films that I decide not to see because they just don't grab me. There's others I really want to see because they do. I, I'm interested in them. And this film is like at the moment, meh. It's like a, bit, a big solid meh. It's like the trailers and what I've seen just don't excite me. There's nothing that's of interest. Yeah, but maybe we, I should see it because it's got dinosaurs we, in it. I don't know. Well, in terms of relevance to the podcast, there's no way I would see this film if it wasn't for possibly talking about it on the podcast. There's just no way. The the last one was just really bad. And not even interesting. I mean, yeah, I just found it a bit boring in many ways. But... It is dinosaurs. We do talk about this stuff. It is sort of a monster dinosaur film. I'm it's told very it's relevant some... to the podcast. Okay, so it's it, it's currently the you know the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park. So lots of people have been talking about Jurassic Park. Coincidentally, you know, with the timing of Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, I've been tweeting hashtag Jurassic Park trivia, which has been really quite popular. There's obviously you know so much love for that film. And I'm told, thanks Sam Barnett, I'm told that there's stuff in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, I'm told that it's yeah. got um, some deliberate homages or references to Jurassic Park, which makes me curious enough to want to see it. But... But there's also, when there's like five films that come out within the space of like two months, I can't go and see all of them. So this week I'm going to see Solo. Well, if I'm seeing Solo this week, I'm not going to see Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom as well. I also want to go and see Deadpool 2. Suck on that, Conway. So, <laughs> so yeah, and I've seen, like I say, I've, I've spent like about £100 watching Infinity War again and again and again. So <laughs> You didn't really go and see it more than once, did you? Sort of three times. Oh, why? <clears throat> why? Because I loved it that much. Worst kind of fanboy. It's your yeah. fault. It's your fault. So that yeah, they've made triple money on you. That's just yeah. oh my god. Yeah. 
the actual reason is I went first of all I had to go and see it with Will and mm-hmm. also Sheila, my mother-in-law. Then I had to go and see it with Tony. And then Will is sixteen; he's allowed to like superhero films, so I had to take him again. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's other options. You can drop him off at the cinema. <laughs> I wanted to see it again. Yeah, like you it. wanted to see it three times. Ugh. I did like it. Ugh. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you'll go see that three times, but we might not even watch Jurassic World 2. Yeah, well, so. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I'll I see it eventually. It's just more relevant to the podcast, I guess. I Yeah, maybe we should wait until it's out on, on what they used to call video, huh? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't want to spend serious amounts of money going to see it. It'll just make me cross. The, the, I, I mean, cinemas these days are not that expensive. I mean, you know, I can go and see a film for like a tenner or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's too much money for. Mm. For uh, yeah, this kind. Of All right, thing. so there you go. So, um, okay, and the final thing we're going to talk about is: Do you know what this is? <sighs> um, it is the big book. I'm guessing. It is the big book. And do you know what we're going to do? The drop test? The drop test. So thank you, Gaffamondo, Gareth Monger, for printing this and bringing it along to the Brian Ford event. Right. Hold on to your... Get close to it. So get your microphone close to it. So put your face right next to it. Right. Here we go. (laughs) Right. You ready? Yeah. (laughs) Sounded like it broke something. That's pretty good. I dropped it right next. Oh, I dropped it right next to my porcelain Pekingese dog, <laughs> which, which is which is fine. Don't worry, Pekingese is fine. <clears throat> Do you like my Pekingese dog? Look at that. That's yeah, very nice. <laughs> um. So there you go. So this current draft, which is draft six, is one thousand two hundred. And five pages, and it's still not finished. Right. How long do you think? How long? Well, until I finished it, mm. I find it really hard. To, <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned about this, is that I don't know. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. <laughs> not a clue. I'm not capable of judging time when it involves the production of works <laughs> so it's I want to say it's got like another year in it but that could be well off <laughs> I, I just desperately want to get it finished and on sale mm. but there's still I'm still in birds I've been working on birds since late summer last year and I'm not finished yet and then I've got to go back and finish the remaining reptiles then I've got to finish synapsids then i've got to go back and revise a load of stuff in the fish section (laughs) (laughs) okay uh, good news good news everybody (laughs) but uh so it's nearly there (laughs) nearly there (laughs) oh god it feels embarrassing to keep talking about it because it's like yeah you've been don't talk about it when it's still a way off but jesus so yeah okay all right we're done yeah, right. Twitter, Patreon, that sort of stuff. Oh, that sort of stuff, yeah. Right, well, you go first then. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter on the, at the John Conway. Um, support the podcasts on Patreon. We're at 
Patreon.com forward slash tetrapodcats. Yep. Oh, and if we we only need a few more, and we'll get farty noises for the podcast. So There's not everyone really wants that. any no farty noises. All the jingles are going to be farty noises, Darren. All of them. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Yeah. I am. Uh, my name's Darren Nash, and I'm on Twitter at. And here I'm going to start as a mean to carry on with what's known as lackluster Star Wars. I really don't see how that's going to help. Surrender is a perfectly acceptable alternative in extreme circumstances. The Empire may be gracious enough to thank you. What do you have in mind for your next move? Well, if they follow Imperial, if they follow standard Imperial procedure, they'll dump the garbage before they go to light speed. Then we just float away with the rest of the garbage. Then what? Then we've got to find a safe port somewhere around here. Got any ideas? No. Where are we? The, I've never seen this written down before. The Anoa system. Anoa system. There's not much there. No. Well, wait. That's this is interesting. <laughs> At Tetsu. <laughs> and uh, I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Tetsu. Thank you to those who support me. You are helping me spend more time on the book. Although, alas, I still have to work for a living. Um, I can't remember what else to say. This is a massively <laughs> lacklustre summing up, isn't it? So what was the lacklustre um, Star Wars thing about? Was that because you can't do um, C-3PO? I just think it's funny. Yeah, it was funny. It, it, didn't, it didn't work for that bit. But there's just some bits where... What sounds enthusiastic is just sounds funny if it's sort of said in a more slightly more deadpan way. I like I'm even wearing a Star Wars T-shirt today, although it's Return of the Jedi. Yeah, yeah. Empire um, Strikes Back. Um, <clears throat> it was interesting sound hearing three P C three PO in a less crazy voice because he sounded more reasonable, and I was like, yeah. yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe they should surrender to the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> But in the film, you're like, no way, man, you silly robot. <laughs>